This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Plutka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Other than me having a cold yet again, Mark, what is going on? What the hell is going on is the uh, the COVID zero policies in China have elicited a massive, massive response. There are protests all across China, 15 different cities, including Beijing. It's not just Americans who are sick of lockdowns, apparently. It's the, it's the Chinese people, and they are not just protesting the lockdown. Some of these protests have had chants of, we need human rights, we need freedom, and down with Xi Jinping. That is a bold statement to make in a country like China, where we already know what the regime did to protesters a few decades ago in Tiananmen Square, uh, where they literally, I mean, not, not just not just figuratively, but literally mowed people down with armored personnel carriers. This is a brutal, brutal regime. And the people, at least out of frustration over COVID, seem to be losing their fear of the regime. What do you, what do you think is going to happen, Gary? I think the problem for us is that there are people who are losing the fear of the regime. But the regime is so large. This is a country of 1.4 billion people. I mean, it's almost five times larger than the United States. It's hard to even imagine. And I think at this moment, at least, you know, these people are being locked down at the point of a gun. And to stand up to it is potentially a death sentence. It's no small bit of courage is needed. And, and it's a testament to how hard they've been driven that they've gotten there. But I think we forget that for every 10,000 of these protesters, there are probably well over 100,000 security and military and police enforcement on top of the Internet enforcement and the Great China Wall and all of the mind control that goes on in communist China. Yeah, for, Of course, the difference is that Fauci didn't actually weld people into their apartments with blowtorches to prevent them from leaving their homes like they have in China. I mean, I think people don't appreciate the level of the lockdown that's taken place. And it, it's put the regime in a really difficult situation of their own making because, first of all, they unleash this virus on the world. It's a failure of their regime. Whether you buy the lab leak theory or not, they suppressed information about this for well over a month when it first broke out in Wuhan, lied to their own people about it, uh, lied to the world about it, and then spread this thing across the entire world. And then they've, in order to deal with it, they've enacted these just absolute draconian lockdowns where you literally have to take a COVID test to use public transportation and show it that that day you've taken a COVID test. And then on top of that, the inefficiency of the communist system, you've got this Sinovac vaccine uh, which they're too proud to use Western vaccines, which are far more effective. And so they've got this highly ineffective Sinovac vaccine, and they haven't been able to get their people to take it because it's not effective. And the elderly population in China is vaccinated with first doses. But by, I think I saw statistics like half the, the adult, the elderly population hasn't had any kind of booster whatsoever. And so their population is extremely vulnerable to this. So they're caught between locking their people down, which causes them to rise up and protest, 
and loosening the restrictions, in which case they could have a massive spread of COVID that would overwhelm their hospital system and, and lead to mass death, which would also anger the population. So what we're seeing is a confluence of the inefficiencies of communist totalitarianism come to you know Xi Jinping's feet in, in a way that it's both sad to watch, but also inspiring that the Chinese people are standing up. It's not an easy thing to chant down with Xi Jinping. In that kind of a situation where you have, as you say, such security forces and such uh, security apparatus and like facial recognition technology that tracks people, the social currency uh, system, to do that is, is a level of frustration that is probably uh, unprecedented. It's quite unbelievable. And I think that one of the things that's frustrated me is to see the perpetuation of this idea that somehow China is gaining on the United States. I think the biggest problem for us is not that China is gaining on us, but that the United States is falling behind by choices that it makes itself, because China's vulnerabilities are so obviously great, are so obviously serious. What is most important to understand is not, oh, this is a horrible human rights violation. Oh, China is such an insecure country that they can't buy mRNA vaccines from the outside world. It's all of this put together, right? It's the fact that, you know, Xi Jinping has now been installed as basically general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party for life, that he has been threatening Taiwan, that he has instituted, you know, Mao Zedong-like domination of people's inner thought. And you remember when uh, we had Harold Brands and Mike Beckley on, and they told us that the military was now supposed to spend hours each week not focusing on drilling or on getting better, but on Xi Jinping thought as well. These are fundamental signs of weakness. And what we ought to be doing, yes. because China is our enemy, is that we ought to be exploiting those weaknesses. And I really worry we're not. Well, what are we doing to help the protesters? I, mean, I don't do think we... we're doing anything. Oh, I don't, I don't think we're doing well, I, I don't. I mean, even verbally, anything. we're barely saying a thing. No, that's right. This is an opportunity for the president and he hasn't been out there every day. I mean, my God, you know, if you think of previous instances where we've seen things like this and, and you've had super vocal support and moral support and frankly, financial and diplomatic support coming out of the United States. Yeah, you know, people, it's like, oh, whatever, you know, I need my cheap Amazon. I don't really care, says Joe Biden. And well, not as cheap Amazon, he needs his climate deal. <laughs> That's what John Kerry is saying to him. Don't anger the Chinese. We need to get them to sign on to, to a climate agreement because that's our number one priority is saving the planet instead of saving the Chinese people. I mean, you know, I think back, I mentioned in our interview with, with our, our wonderful guest, Dan Blumenthal, I'm reading Will Inboden's fantastic, fantastic book on Ronald Reagan, The Peacemaker. I think everybody listening to this podcast, please go drop what you're doing, go on Amazon, buy a copy of this book. It's just spectacular. But one of the things that Will points out is that Ronald Reagan, you know, when the Solidarity Movement rose up and the martial law crackdown happened, Ronald Reagan was very actively supporting, in a covert manner, supporting the Solidarity Underground and doing a lot of things, working with Pope John Paul II to get assistance in to help keep the, the movement alive. And there was a brutal martial law crackdown in Poland where they were, you know, it didn't look like that movement was going to amount to anything. And because America stood with the people of Poland in a matter of a decade, the Solidarity Movement had risen up and, you know, the communist regime was no more. We're not doing that sort of thing to aggressively challenge the regime, to challenge the legitimacy of the regime, to stand with the protesters. And what you could be seeing here is the formation of 
you know, a movement that could eventually democratize China. They, you know, the, yes, they're going to crack down brutally, but we should, we should be standing with them. And if it doesn't happen, we should be doing it. If it doesn't turn out to be that, then there's no harm from having tried to help them. But we're no, we I mean, no, well, to have that kind of mentality. Well, I mean, obviously, there are risks in helping them. And those risks are always first and foremost on the Biden administration's mind, unfortunately. I, look, you know. But, I, but I Danny, you can, you can do things like you can break the information blockade. There are lots of things that we can do to get free information into China. There's lots of things that we could be doing, just like we did during the Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union. There, there are things that are not necessarily covert operations that require us to like be working with the opposition, but you can get information to people. You can make it easier for people to communicate with each other. There's lots of things. Right. To do. And I agree with you. And Congress has forced a lot of those things down various administrations' throats. The reason we have something called Radio Free Asia, which broadcasts in Chinese as well, is because Congress uh, forced its creation in the face of administrations who were indifferent. But one of the things that really strikes me about this is this is the confluence of all the things that we believe in, right? The president of the United States keeps saying, democracy is the most important thing. That's going to be the focus of my administration. I don't know what he's talking about. I'll be perfectly honest. I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about when he says that, because he's not evinced any caring at all for the democratic rights of anybody except democratic voters, capital D in the party sense in the United States. The second part of this is that we have an economic incentive. We are way too wrapped up with it with China. Yes. You and I have talked about this repeatedly about how we get all of our medicines from China, about how we really are a captive state because China so controls our supplies in a variety of critical areas. And the last is the military. There is nothing that suggests that we should not be doing everything we can to support the Chinese people. And yet, as best as I can tell, unless we really are incredibly capable at covert operations, I, as best I can tell, we're doing absolutely nothing. Just like we're doing nothing in Iran. And, you know, as you say, Joe Biden is the president who said that he's defining his presidency by the battle between autocracy and democracy. Just gave the green light for Chevron to start drilling in Venezuela again, because, you know, who cares about democracy when oil prices are through the roof, thanks to his policy. So, yes. And the other thing we're not doing, putting putting aside all the, the, the moral question of standing with the Chinese people as they rise up to, against their, their tyrants, is we're not doing what's necessary to rebuild our military and deploy the kind of capabilities we need to make sure that they don't invade Taiwan. Not only are we not undermining the Xi Jinping dictatorship, we're not deterring them. So, I mean, look, we've talked about this. We've actually focused a lot on these issues this year with our conversations with Mike Backley and with Hal Brands and also with Derek Scissors and with others. But hey, I think this needs more attention. And one of the things that I had hoped for from a Republican Congress was that they would be paying more attention to these issues because it has historically been Congress that has forced administrations, both Democratic and Republican, to do more to stand up for the rights of the Chinese people and for our own national security in the East and South China Seas. So there's so much we could do. Hey, we, we, we ought to bring on our, our guest. Yeah, go ahead. I, you do the power. introductions, don't you? I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> anyway, all right. We yes, we should, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm sick. All right. Good idea. <laughs> Who is our guest, Daddy? Just indeed. All right. Anyway, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm not operating on absolutely every cylinder. 
Anyway, Mark, since you asked, our guest okay. today is Dan Blumenthal. Came to AEI from the Pentagon, where he was the senior director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia. And he's been on the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He was on the Congressional Advisory Board of the, of the U.S.-China Working Group. He's written an excellent book that really was, to me, one of the more prescient discussions of the challenges that we face called The China Nightmare, the, the Grand Ambitions of a Decaying State. And on top of everything else, he's a good friend and a great guy. So thrilled to have him. Here's our interview. Well, Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. So Americans have been watching these protests unfolding in China. Apparently, there have been 20 demonstrations across 15 cities, including Beijing and Shanghai. It's been described as the biggest Chinese protest since Tiananmen Square. People even chanting for the removal of Xi Jinping. That's that's kind of unprecedented in the newly re-totalitarianized, if that's a word, China. Tell us what's happening. Well, there are certainly a lot of protests. A couple things uh, really stick out. You know, first, let's a little context. So this is, as you say, soon after the 20th Party Congress and Xi Jinping had definitely consolidated control and gotten all of his loyalist uh, spots on the Standing Committee of the Politburo and elevated public security officials to their highest standing probably ever in the CCP hierarchy. But there's been these ter- these COVID lockdowns and people are just sick of them, uh, really draconian lockdowns, plus a fire in uh, Urumqi and Xinjiang, a tragic event inside an apartment complex, and and people really responded to that. One thing that's really striking is what we thought was that she had perfected this censorship surveillance state, but Chinese protesters and and uh, clever Chinese citizens have punctured the Great Firewall and got many of these videos out through Twitter and and through social media. So. Uh, so we know a lot more about, or we've seen a lot more about these protests than was supposed to be possible in this quote-unquote perfect police state. So Dan, there are reportedly thousands, maybe even tens of thousands who've been arrested. The Chinese, in addition to running you know, the world's only concentration camps of the modern 21st century uh, in Xinjiang, containing you know about a million Uyghurs, have now set up these sort of quarantine centers that frankly also look like the concentration camps. And you know, you were talking about the video. I, uh, we'll ask Clara to link it in our transcript. But one of the most appalling videos I saw just a, a day or so ago was this man alone in his apartment who was being pulled out by these hazmat clad authorities because he said he he wanted to stay in his apartment and they insisted that he go to one of these quarantine areas and it shows him screaming and them suppressing him. It's just insanity. Why in the face of an obviously untenable policy is Xi Jinping sticking to his guns? Why has this become so associated with his rule? Well, he made it so. He made it so in removing any pretense of of consensus in the decision-making at the elite level of politics in China, he's made himself responsible for and accountable only, you know, as, 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 as one man personalized and he personalized the response to COVID. And he said uh, it became part of Xi Jinping thought that COVID 
zero is the policy. It's the correct policy. You know, they had theory about why it is in, in true Marxist Leninist fashion, the correct policy, why it's the scientific policy, why it's the more humane policy than what the West is doing. And when you get to that level of CCP doctrine, there can be no uh, break. A uh, break from that is an admission that your theory of the case is incorrect, and that can be very dangerous in CCP politics. And he also had to prove that the East was rising and, and the West is faltering, as he says, that the, the Chinese response to COVID is better than the U.S. response. Uh, all of this also had to do with uh, what we know is huge embarrassment about the fact that people know that the virus originated in Wuhan. So he elevated this to be um, you know, at the level of warfare with another nation, and he could not be wrong. That's why you're seeing these sort of appalling scenes and and people upholding uh, the COVID zero, even uh, against uh, resistance of the uh, just basic resistance, basic human resistance of the kind you described. Can you just describe to us in concrete terms about how extreme the COVID zero policies are? And also, isn't one of the reasons why they seem to be caught in this policy, in addition to it becoming Xi Jinping doctrine, is that the Sinovac vaccine doesn't work? very well. And so they haven't been able to vaccinate their elderly population in any significant way, which means that if they were to have a wave of COVID, you'd have mass deaths of the elderly and mass hospitalizations, and they don't have the ICU capability. seems like they're stuck by their own ideology and also the inefficiency of communism. Is that fair? It's fair, Mark. I mean, it's a great point. I've been watching China for for a while now. I mean, I, I lived there in, in 1999 to learn the language and 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 so on. And and I'm still very surprised by certain things. So so some real humility in China watching, I think, is is necessary. The the failure of the Sinovac vaccine, I guess, is not as surprising really as the fact that they didn't use these mass lockdowns to also do mass vaccinations. It's it's a big surprise uh, to me at least. And even with a, as you say, a much much inferior product, Sinovac, than what we have, the mRNA vaccine. It's not an mRNA vaccine, which, you know, none of us are scientists here. What, what that means is, is it's a lower level of technology, a much lower level of technology. It's like an old flu vaccine, but it still provides some uh, immunization from what I understand. But just the failure to immunize is is really just in, incredible. So, uh, and I guess uh, we now know that it's another reason uh, that they were so devoted to this lockdown policy it is a huge problem. Uh, they're certainly trying. It's an embarrassment. It's not for lack of trying that they weren't able to form an M- mRNA vaccine. They're certainly trying to steal it. They're trying to re- recruit as many virologists as they can in the United States and elsewhere. But again, another embarrassment. Uh, you know, China, according to Xi Jinping doctrine, is supposed to be surpassing us in many respects. And and here we are with with a with a vaccine that is is doing so much better uh, than than Sinovac. So Dan, so much of this is interlocking. So you have a zero COVID response, an absolutely draconian response that has eaten into support for the government, but it has had also enormous economic implications. We've seen thousands and thousands of people laid off from some of China's biggest companies, Alibaba, Tencent. So the Chinese economy itself is slowing down. Mom and pop shops, uh, such that they are around China, are reportedly being closed. People are out of business. There's no social safety net. It's a country that's already full of 
more young men disproportionately, as the work of our own colleague Nick Eberstadt shows, than any other country in the world. Can she contain this damage, this problem? Because it's not just health anger, it's economic unrest, it's dissatisfaction. Can he contain it? I think, unfortunately, he can, at least in the short term. What we're picking up in what he's saying about the response to the protests while this is something that's extremely important that he, not unlike other other dictators that, that you watch, Danny, and then you watch Mark, but what he says in Chinese is quite different than what's published in English. So in English, there's a lot coming out in the press now about how they're going to back off from some of the more draconian policies in order to contain the anger, and, and I think they will. But in Chinese, he's making ominous threats about, about what he's going to do. Uh, in response to to these protests and how much more work needs to be done to perfect this police state. Our colleague, Sheena Greitens, who's a UT professor as well, has done an excellent job talking about how he how during COVID, COVID has been a good excuse to expand the power of the Ministry of State Security. So the uh, Ministry of Public uh, Security and Ministry of, of State Security, everybody has to have a phone, an uh, equivalent of an iPhone now, with an unbelievable amount of data that is put into that phone, tracks people and so on. So the answer is going to be an even greater expansion of surveillance, of censorship, of draconian measures to control, try to control people. It sounds like they're going after people in their apartments. Apparently, the protesters were using dating apps to try and communicate out of sight of the regime. And and it seems like they're really cracking down on them. The other thing that seems different from Tiananmen Square decades ago is that in Tiananmen Square, there was a split in the Chinese Communist Party between sort of the reform faction that wanted to deal with the protesters and, and respond to them and thought they were patriotic and legitimate, and then the Li Peng faction that wanted to crack down. And there doesn't seem to be any splits in the party these days. It's a, Xi has completely consolidated power, hasn't he? Yes, that's that's absolutely right, Mark. So in, in Tiananmen, they came very close to near-death experience because uh, Zhao Ziyang, who had been a real reformer uh, under Deng Xiaoping and so on, was pushing for a while uh, for another type of response to to the student protests, at least when they began. And, and in the end, he changed, changed tack. But there's nobody who can do that in the system right now, particularly after the 20th Party Congress. These are these are loyalists. These are these are lackeys. Uh, you know, these are political loyalists. Uh, you know, they've improved, uh, shall we say, their their responses uh, in terms of not being very hesitant to send untrained PLA soldiers into into areas to control protests. They have other internal security forces who are better trained to deal with rioting and to do the kinds of things that you just described, Mark, in people's apartments and so forth. So, Deb, the state is immersing itself in people's lives in ever more domineering ways, right? As you said, you know, people are required not just to test themselves for COVID every day, but to report themselves to the authorities to turn themselves into quarantine. They're required to spend some number of hours on studying an app of Xi Jinping thought. I think people haven't focused on how absolutely loony that is. The military is now focused on that. That sounds like American university right now. (laughs) That is no different from the college experience of the average university student in the United States today. Mark, I'll I'll just say if, if the KGB had designed us in the United States to go through sort of a cultural revolution of our own, 
um, this is what they would have done, right? I mean, you know, students learning yeah. Marxist-Leninism and having to go through struggle sessions. Test for COVID. Faculty, <laughs> faculty having, having to go through. So, you know, it's... You know, oh, and, and not just that. I mean, look, you know, we, of course, we talk about the Chinese, but I mean, Georgetown University forced its students all to quarantine in a right. particular building. I mean, and, you know, the, the government obviously with the longest lockdown in the entire world was, you know, my home state of Victoria and Australia, their governor just got reelected, which is just, mm. like, I mean, something unbelievable. But I mean, I think, you know, there are certain populations that, you know, sort of Fauci style really liked it. I don't think the Chinese like it, though. So, you know, as she tightens his grip, as he is forced to end the compact that existed between the Chinese Communist Party and the people, you know, you give us your freedom and we'll give you Fendi handbags. That's now over as well. People are really talking about the likelihood of him engaging in some sort of aggression toward Taiwan. Do you see it that way? Well, I, I'm a little skeptical about about the initial compact. I mean, I, I think people did get rich, they're, they're much richer. That's, that's absolutely true. But I, I see Xi as as less a massive discontinuity and, and massive change as uh, someone who was strong enough to implement better some of the policies put in by his predecessors. So, you know, there there was a police state beforehand, w- without a doubt. China was growing at faster rates before him, without a doubt. So people had uh, less reason to hit the streets and 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 so forth. But you know, I I think a lot of the elements that we see today were in place for for some time. It's just less less in the West were paying uh, this close this close attention. On the Taiwan question in particular, I've been watching that closely for for some time. We've had, you know, this this past week was the release of kind of a what seems like a kind of boring Washington event, the release of the Chinese military power report. This is the 20th one uh, since 2022. Uh, Explain help, to folks, Dan, explain to folks what, what the Chinese military power report is. Okay, sure. So the Chinese military power report was... Um, Actually forced upon the Department of Defense in, in the late uh, era of, of the late parts of the Clinton administration by Republicans in Congress. Uh, people already saw that the Chinese were uh, modernizing their military at a rapid clip. We're concerned about other other issues as well. But, you know, the fact that this goes back to that time. It needs to be said because the, if you wanted to, if you wanted to look, you could see that the Chinese were building up their power and wanted to change. Uh, fundamental elements of of the world order and and threaten Taiwan and other neighbors even back then. So Republican uh, uh, staff and Republican senators and congressmen, including I think uh, folks that you worked with and you worked worked for, uh, uh, got this got this passed through the National Defense Authorization Act, and it forced the Department of Defense to report publicly every year on developments in 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 Chinese military modernization, modeled on something similar in the 1980s, the Soviet military power report, which had uh, eventually a huge impact on the USDOD being able to justify its changes in strategy and force posture and resources. Uh, so if you go back to 2002, you can look and see, if, if anyone wants to do that, 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 that many of the things that the PLA is doing today and, and has been able to acquire today were you know, initially analyze and hinted that this is the direction that they were going uh, even back then. But now we have a situation where more people are paying attention. So these reports get a lot, a lot more news coverage uh, throughout the major newspapers. 
Uh, and it's it's pretty scary. I mean, you know, the the Chinese capabilities and resources to be able to invade and occupy Taiwan, uh, the amount of shipping they have, the amount of amphibious capability they have, the amount of missiles and air power they have is is really quite extraordinary. The size of their navy. Um, that doesn't mean that they're about that they're on the precipice of attacking and invading uh, Taiwan for for a number of reasons, but it, it it does mean that their capabilities have have improved across the board in 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 ways that that deeply and profoundly affect the balance of power in the region. How are our capabilities to counter those? Well, our capabilities to counter those are, on the one hand, I would say, and and this goes to my skepticism of a of a imminent invasion, which is what. Uh, the the national security community is is orienting around right now. On the one hand, our capabilities are are excellent. I mean, the U.S. military is a combat experience. The U.S. military, uh, you know, has officers have have run major campaigns, you know, in 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 Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, people might say that's not relevant, but of course, it's relevant. I mean, they've they've actually fought wars. They've had to deal with things going wrong. They've been trained and equipped, and so on. At one level, you know, it, we're we're quite capable of of dealing with quite a few different scenarios. At another level, we're under we're very under resourced. In order to demonstrate to China that we uh, are, are are serious about defending our interests in the Taiwan Strait and throughout the region, not just the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea, other places they may challenge us, Korea. We need more capability and we need just a, a larger navy and, and better relationships throughout the region. I guess what I don't really understand, I think we've gotten really good at observation on China. I think for all of the time that perhaps um, there was excessive optimism about China. You and I have talked about this a lot. There's now obviously an enormous amount of pessimism about the future of China and about the risk that it poses. Okay, that's great. But you know, sort of going along with what Mark just asked you, I don't have a sense of what our options are. You have suggested that the United States is not doing as good a job as it needs to in responding politically and economically before it responds militarily. So what should we be doing differently? The first thing we need to do is is realize that when it comes to the Taiwan Strait, as well as, as other, let's call it, let's say, strategic and military interests throughout the region, the Chinese are, are exercising, are using their military in every, every day to intimidate, to coerce, to habituate. Uh, you know, you, you look, for example, at types of things they did when uh, Speaker Pelosi said uh, said she wanted to go to Taiwan and afterwards. It's to create a psychological impact in the United States to erode our uh, relationships and the regional relationship with Taiwan to make us question our judgment. It's, it's a very, it's a very uh, important psychological course of campaign. We have to be able to uh, undermine that and we have to be able to, to say, you know, that, that the Chinese aren't going to uh, succeed in in using military intimidation to change our uh, fundamental political relationships throughout the region and or define what we're what we're allowed or not allowed to do uh, with Taiwan uh, or or with other countries throughout the region. So fundamentally, uh, we we have to realize that 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 what we're looking at is not a binary choice between uh, the Chinese. Uh, start at, at a point where they're not doing anything against Taiwan, and then they go and invade Taiwan. Uh, it's 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 something different. It's an ongoing uh, escalation of of diplomatic, psychological, informational, legal, 
uh, tools that they're using to to impose a certain reality, uh, you know, uh, in the Taiwan Strait that we we just we just cannot accept. Um, so that that's that's first and and and, and foremost, I think. Uh, the other the other kinds of things I I think that we need to be doing are look, we we just can't. It just it it just gets to a certain point where. The Chinese Navy and the Chinese Coast Guard and and the amount of ships they can mobilize in, and we've seen them do in the South China Sea, and the East China Sea, and the Taiwan Strait. There's so just the volume of them. You know, we, we we there just comes a certain point where if we don't adequately resource the national defense strategies that we keep putting out, um, it just it just doesn't look credible anymore. So those those are two areas where where we uh, where we really uh, could do much better. Should we be also trying to help the Chinese who are demonstrating against their government? Is there something we ought to do? Like, I, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at Iran. I think there are a lot of things we should do. I think we should absolutely be able to leverage the help leverage the Iranian people against our shared enemy, the, the Iranian government. Is the same dynamic at play in China? Should we be doing something to help these people? And if so, what? Well, the short answer is is yes, but but Danny, you know, you mentioned the Iran protests. Let me just make a comment about another thing I think that that I've witnessed recently in the in the U.S. strategic community, which is to try to say we can't be focusing on helping Iran or 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 fighting Russia or helping others fight Russia because we only we're so behind in this competition and rivalry with China that we have to put all our resources in China. But guess who disagrees with that? That's Xi Jinping himself. So in the 20th Party Congress, in the lead up, he was saying that the strategic environment was shifting against him. And and he was making these mentions, uh, albeit obliquely, the fact that there were Iranian protests and that the Ukrainian resistance and NATO's help for Ukraine was much stronger than he thought. The number one thing we can do, frankly, is actually defeat Putin in Ukraine. That's Xi Jinping's best friend. I'm saying this because I read my team, my staff reads uh, what Xi Jinping says very carefully. And and the fact that that the that Putin didn't get good information from the from the military makes Xi Jinping think that he doesn't get good information from the military. The fact that that his military wasn't actually able at the end of the day to forget all the the equipment they had and the doctrine they had wasn't actually able to execute very complicated campaigns in the in 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 the face of of counter threats, you know, affects Xi Jinping as well because very few people in the PLA have any combat experience. So all these things matter a lot. The rest of the world doesn't hermetically seal off regions. Uh, you know, Putin is affected by what happened in Afghanistan, and she is affected by what happens in Russia. So that's to say that that if we look like we are supporting the Iranians right now, Xi Jinping will have to and that imposes a cost on Xi Jinping and I know this is this is a very complicated thing to explain I think sometimes but what it what it what I mean by that is he will think that the United States is going to put more efforts into undermining regimes that are its enemies and that means he'll have to put more efforts into protecting his own regime and if he does that in a in a situation where China has finite resources he can do less to be aggressive abroad and and again, that that's how the logic goes. That's how he sees the logic. If he thinks the United States is actually defending and promoting its values and interests, he has to work harder to defend uh, his own regime.
And so that th- those things are just so important. I, I cannot uh, emphasize enough how important it is to be successful in the other theaters that he watches. But to answer your question more directly, Danny, you know, this is a bit of a tragic uh, situation. We had opportunities before Xi Jinping to do more to help the Chinese develop civil society, do more to help the Chinese, to be clear with the Chinese that we weren't going to accept this um, complete cr- uh, you know, crackdown on on. Uh, on civil liberties and, and and so forth. Now we do have a means. Uh, certainly, we've seen a lot of Chinese people break the firewall themselves. So it's not a perfect firewall. They, as Mark said, they do creative things like using dating apps to get videos uh, out to the West. They use uh, fake Twitter accounts and so forth. So there are technologies that that are that are out there that we can help with that break the great firewall to get information to the Chinese. One of them, as, as you know, Danny and, and Mark, you know, just just working in, in other regions. One of the things that Chinese people need so badly is is information that breaks down the propaganda that doesn't paint the United States in these ominous terms, you know, that that Xi Jinping is trying to do. So so there there are things we can do. It's harder. It's getting harder. To do so, uh, just because uh, it's it's a cat and mouse game, but uh, you know this is an era of co- an area of competition, the information space that we have to engage in, and particularly if we want to prevent a war. This is sort of a minor segue, but back to your earlier comments: Do the Chinese people are they getting information about what's actually happening in Ukraine? Are they aware that Russia tried to invade Ukraine and that it's failing miserably, and that the Ukrainians are resisting and pushing them back? out of territory. Is that news getting to the average Chinese consumer? Very, very difficult to get into China, that kind of information, you know, the because then, it, because again, that would contradict Xi Jinping's theories. And again, as a good Marxist-Leninist, his theory is supposedly scientific and, and his decision-making is infallible. And so if he decided that, that he was going to support uh, his good friend, Vladimir Putin, he can't be wrong, right? So then, the the propaganda organs and the censors work overtime to make sure that all they're hearing in China is that the United States and NATO started this war through their expansionist tendencies, through their desire. You know, the Chinese say this in China, in Chinese all the time, what they say about us and what they say about who started the war and why the Ukrainians are suffering is, is uh, repeated over and over again. The United States and NATO started a war of ex- because they wanted to expand the blocks. We have a Cold War mentality in their view, in their in their telling, and they go around the world, uh, frankly, and 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 make these kinds of speeches. And we don't do very much to counter them. But but Mark, you know, the the point is that that what they're getting uh, is is a lot of very strident anti-American propaganda. You mentioned that you you and your team spend a lot of time reading what Xi Jinping says in Chinese as opposed to what he says to the West. My understanding is that just like Vladimir Putin was very clear about his intentions towards Ukraine, Xi Jinping has, has been pretty clear about his intentions towards Taiwan. One of the big mistakes we made in Ukraine was not taking the threat seriously from, from what Putin said and not arming them to the teeth in advance of, a, of an invasion. Having made that mistake in Ukraine, if China were to invade Taiwan tomorrow, what will we wish we had done to arm the Taiwanese, but also to deploy our own capabilities in the region to counter that? No, that's that's a terrific question. That. That's a terrific question, Mark. Um, we would have wished we had taken a lot more risks in terms of uh, in terms of what we do with Taiwan. 
you know, training Taiwan, actual actual training of, of Taiwan military, um, which we self-deter from doing for the most part. We would wish that we had troops that were ready to deploy onto Taiwan, um, which, of course, we don't do because of, of, of the self-deterrence. Uh, we would wish that we had pushed our allies harder in the in the Philippines to to ensure that we were back and able to operate from the Philippines, it's very close to Taiwan, complicating China's problems. Um, you know, we will wish that we had uh, many, many more of the kinds of munitions that we can't seem to make enough of. Uh, you know, in the Ukraine uh, situation, we will wish that we'll look back over the last twenty years and look at our debates. Uh, you know, look at the work of of our colleague Mackenzie England and say why. Did we not do that? Why did we? We were we were squabbling over what are we talking about here? You know, in terms of the size of the U.S. economy, a little few, a few rounding errors to get ourselves more, uh, you know, more naval capability, more submarines that that the Chinese can't find. You know, these sorts of things. We will have wished that we had challenged the Chinese a bit more aggressively, like we used to do with the Soviet Union. Uh, when the Chinese do these bomber circumnavigations around the Taiwan Strait, so they took us more seriously. Uh, the list goes on and on. It's a great question, and it's one everyone should be asking right now, because for 20 years, as Danny says, we've been talking, we've been observing, we have scholars and analysts who are pointing to the problems, uh, and still, uh, it would be one of the greatest disasters, I think, in, in modern history if the Chinese do go ahead, because they think, because they're overconfident. Exit question from me, Dan. What can we do? You said, you know, among the most important things we can do to help contain and slow down the Chinese advance is that we can support the Iranian people. We can support the Ukrainians against Putin. We can be more decisive in our alliance. We can obviously spend more on our defense. Is there any realistic prospect of loosening the grip of the Chinese Communist Party? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this isn't about China, right? This is about the Chinese Communist Party, just like it's not about Russia, it's about Putin. Is there any realistic prospect that we can loosen the grip of the party and in that way try to avert some of the disasters that are that are certainly coming our way, whether it's sooner or later? I think there are. I go back to the information space. Look, if, if the, the, the Chinese people are not using very complicated technology to get around the censors and to get around propaganda. They're using, from what I understand, you know, things like VPNs, um, you know, and, and, and other things to, to put things online. There's been a lot of talk about breaking the great firewall, you know, so, so getting through the censorship, uh, providing basic information. So the reason I'm so, I emphasize this so much is because the ability of people who want to protest against their government to actually coordinate across a big country is very difficult. And uh, my understanding of, of past protest movements that have been successful, you know, there, there are two ingredients to them. Uh, one is in the late Cold War, for example, which all of us like to point to is, is, is the U.S. leading an ideological assault on the legitimacy uh, you know, of of a, of a country ruled by the CC, uh, the equivalent of a CCP in that case, the Soviet Union, and the second is, you know, brave leaders inside those countries able to coordinate and strategize their protests in ways that the regime ultimately just couldn't keep up with. 
Here's a question for me. I'm almost finished Will Inboden's fantastic book on yes. Ronald Reagan. And I've been listening to it in my car rides going up to see my son play hockey in college. And it's been a great companion for those trips. But one of the things, obviously, that happened in the Soviet Union was that the system was in crisis. And Gorbachev came in to try and save communism and ended up through reforming it, bringing it down uh, with the outside pressure from Reagan. But is China heading towards a similar precipice now? Because it sounds like Hal Brands has a new book out and talking about how they're, they're, they're on the precipice of a decline, which is why they're sort of dangerous now. Uh, I know there's some dispute about the timing of all that, but by 2025, there's supposedly there's supposed to be more adult diapers being sold in, in the PRC than baby diapers. They have a demographic crisis. Their growth figures are, are a lie. Are they heading to that point soon where they're, they're vulnerable because their economy is going to be teetering and their demographic collapse is happening? Well, the, the, the short answer is, is yes. Um, but, but let me just emphasize a, a few points. One is that the, Xi Jinping is acting the way he's acting when it comes to what he calls reddening, re-reddening the state. You called it re-totalitarianizing. He calls it re-reddening, making it redder, making it more ruled by the Red Party, the you know the the, the Communist Party, because he has studied so carefully Gorbachev, and he's mm-hmm. very very clear about that, and he makes all the cadre study his raison d'etre is to not be a Gorbachev, right? So so he he came in in 2012 fearing that the party was headed in the same direction as, as the Gorbachev-led Communist Party in the Soviet Union. And much of his actions have been, should be seen as an attempt to not fall into that same trap, right? And And in many ways, he's been successful. That's why one of the main things he stresses, why everyone has to study, as as you said before, Mark, these apps about Xi Jinping thought is he believes, you know, he believes that, that if, if the party cadre stopped believing in the ideology of the party, that then, then it will collapse. And that's, that's where, that's how he reads Gorbachev. So we're up against a more formidable character who, who thinks that we are going to take advantage of a Gorbachev. And he's put more things in place to make sure that, he doesn't uh, take China down the road of, of facing the Soviet fate. So yes, the Chinese are absolutely facing demographic crisis. They're absolutely stopping their reform program and economics, as Derek Scissors has, has written. They're adjusting their economic strategy in order to deal with those things. So it's a tough, tough, tough competitor. Uh, and it's a competitor that learned from the collapse of the Soviet Union. But are they brittle? Well, I guess the way I would answer that, and that this goes back to, to, to the fabulous book by Will and Bowden, is we've never tested it really, right? So, uh, you know, and I don't mean, you know, I don't mean, you know, losing our minds and, and you know, having a full-on sort of uh, uh, strategy of, of regime change and so on, but challenging the legitimacy of the CCP, doing things that, other things that are in that book on Reagan, right? Actually taking advantage of their vulnerabilities, you know, having economic strategies ourselves that that essentially engage in, in, in actions that challenge them more directly. We don't do that. Right. So, so we'll, we haven't really tested how brittle they are and we can, we, we can 
do that. And for all kinds of different reasons, we can, we can say we, we, if we find those weaknesses and those vulnerabilities and we start pushing on them, we can say, we'll keep doing this unless you stop, um, you know, challenging Taiwan. However, we want to, you know, whatever policy outcome, you know, people, people decide on. But the point is to challenge, challenging them directly is not something we've actually done much of at all. And we need to start. We need to start. We need to do much, much better. I really I'm I'm hoping that that a Republican Congress will at least put light some fire under the butt of the Biden administration to do more. It's not a question of just the military or just the economics or just you know the, the democracy part. It's everything together, as you rightly say. Thanks so much, Dan, uh, for talking to us. We know this was a super busy week for you and our scheduling was a nightmare, too. So. Thank you a ton. Thank you very much. And I agree totally about doing more across the board. Inshallah. Thanks, Dan. So, Danny, I think the most important thing of many important things that Dan just said to us is that the number one thing we can do to deter a war with China is to help Ukraine defeat Russia. I think that that is a insight that is slipped over the heads of many people in Washington right now who are criticizing our support for Ukraine. I interviewed Congressman Mike Gallagher recently for my Washington Post column, which which will be coming out soon. And one of the things he said to me, which I thought was very prescient, is that Vegas rules don't apply, that what happens in Kherson doesn't stay in Kherson, and that it's felt in Beijing, it's felt in Iran, it's felt in the Middle East, it's felt everywhere. And I think that's very true. If we are successful in helping the Ukrainians deliver a defeat to Russia, that is going to cause Xi Jinping and his regime to do a very careful review of their own capabilities. And he's got to be wondering whether his generals have lied to him the way Putin's generals lied to him. You know, the PLA is not only a military operation, it's a business empire. And it's a grift uh, for a lot of these generals are very, very wealthy from the business interest. How much of that money has been actually going to military capabilities and how much of that money has been going to line the pockets of some of these corrupt PLA generals? I think he's got to wonder. And he's also got to wonder, will the Taiwanese people fight the way the Ukrainians did? Because everyone has been surprised, the entire world has been surprised by the courage and the resilience and the tenacity of the Ukrainian people. And when people are fighting for their for the for their very lives and their very homes, they tend to be very tenacious. And so it's got to cause a lot of questions. So I think the best thing we can do in the short term, in addition to doing all the things that Dan said we should be doing about arming Taiwan, about deploying our capabilities, the most important thing we should be doing is helping uh, Ukraine win and Putin leave that country with his tail between his legs. And this is why I don't understand the sort of growing tide of defeatism, particularly on the right, about whether we should continue to to help Ukraine. It's certainly much more economically efficient to help them fight a war rather than to fight a war ourselves. Look, just to underscore what you said, I think it's important that people remember what the demonstrator effect looks like of a victory. You know, go all the way back to a war that many people argued was inconsequential um, to hit Joe Biden among them, I should add, which was Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait back in 1990. Again, you know, Saddam Hussein, kind of a lousy guy, the Kuwaitis, kind of hard to like, little rich privileged emirate. And yet, you know, the United States, in one of the most important military actions in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
went and basically, you know, with a twitch of our toe. Now, admittedly, we deployed almost half a million troops there, but mechanically, this was just a, a, a simple operation for us, enormously intimidating to everybody, including the newly born Russia, including Iran, including everybody who was watching the capabilities of the United States. It is much better to deter people than it is to have to go and fight them in the end. And I don't know why that lesson seems so lost on so many people on both sides of the aisle. No, I agree with you, Danny. We're planning to do a podcast on this soon because there have been some troubling reports about the state of our defense industrial base and the fact that we are using up our supplies of stingers and our supplies of Javelin missiles, and it's going to take us a very long time to replenish them. Uh, At the same time, we are testing capabilities that we've given the Ukrainians in combat that we would never be have the opportunity to test in real combat situations. And so we're getting some benefits that way. And, you know, I think the reality is, is those investments and allowing the Ukrainians to fight a war for us, again, defeat one our enemy for us without using any American troops. And all we have to do is give them weapons and training and ammunition is an infinitely Uh, if it has a deterrent effect on China, infinitely better than having us to have to come to the defense of Taiwan in the in the not too distant future. If if the Ukraine war delays or deters a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, then every cent and every missile and every dime that we have spent not only is the right thing to do, but is in our deep, deep national interest. That was an excellent speech, Mark. We can end on that. I should be a speechwriter one day. You should be on that excellent <laughs> and eloquent note. Yeah, no, we can't. We talk, we talk a lot about China on this podcast. We talk a lot about uh, about the importance of defense. But the bottom line is, you know, there is nothing that will make you forget, uh, you know, the fact that milk costs six dollars a gallon or anything else faster than us being engaged in some sort of military conflict with China. This is to be avoided. And it's not to be avoided because we're running away. It is to be avoided by making them so afraid that they will not come for us or our allies. And on that courageous note, exactly. Peace through strength. Good term there. (laughs) Anyway, take care, everybody. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 